Good ideas don't always work. See, we have all the best of intentions, but if we lack intentionality, nothing happens. Sometimes it's convenience, sometimes it's comfort, sometimes it's our schedule. So we just end up doing the same thing we've always done, getting the same results we always get, and nothing ever changes. But what if there was a way to do things different? A way to turn ideas into actions and intentions into reality? I know you want to, but will you? Would you stand with me and observe a moment of silence in remembrance of September the 11th? Lord Jesus, may we never forget those who lost their lives and those who ran towards the buildings to help and save. May we never forget and may your grace be available for all today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. My name is Grant, and I'm glad you're here. There are two kinds of people, those who like to be the center of attention and those who cannot stand to be the focus of people's attention. Two weeks ago, Laurel and I witnessed the epic meltdown of a young boy on an airplane. He kicked the seat, he screamed, he pounded the airplane wall. Did I mention that he screamed? And he screamed, and he screamed for the entire descent. His mom did everything that she could to calm him down and her best attempts just incited his anger all the more. By the time we got on the ground, there was zero empathy for this obnoxious little tyrant and much empathy for the mom. It appeared the little boy wanted to be the center of everyone's attention. The mom most certainly did not. I attended school at Linden Lanes Elementary School in Brandon, Manitoba. In the fifth grade, it was optional to change clothes for gym class. I took that option because even back then, I was a little obsessive compulsive when it came to personal hygiene. One winter day, my fifth grade class was summoned from gym class to the classroom of Mrs. Watt, who was my teacher. Upon entering the room, we all saw Mrs. Watt holding a dripping pair of long thermal underwear from her bony finger. It was my underwear. (laughs) She told us some diabolical person had thrown a fellow classmate's underwear into the toilet. She asked, whose underwear is this? I said, nothing. My friend Murray said, it belongs to Fishbook. I'm sure I said things in my head that were not in accordance with James chapter 3. Just saying. Mrs. Watt asked for the culprit to step forward. No one moved. I just wanted her to stop talking, give me my underwear, and let me slip into an early grave because I did not want to be the center of attention any longer. This week, James wants to speak to those of us who say we don't want to be the center of our attention, but we live our lives as if we do. 
In your Bible, on your outline, and on the screens, James chapter 4, as it was read by Pastor Julie, uh, we'll read to you again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the jealousy longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. And that's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Are you ready? <laughs> James is confronting what happens when a follower of Jesus gets caught up in me-centered living and he begins with me-centered relationships. In verse number two, he tells it like it is. He says, you people quarrel and fight. James is talking to what was known as the diaspora, Christians who'd been scattered among the world, but they were struggling to learn how to do life together. And obviously it's not going too well because James actually scolds them. He says, people are fighting about something. People in church classically fight about the color of the carpet, the clothing of the pastor, the style of music. And James goes so far as to tell them why you're actually fighting. Because you're fighting because you have this desire inside of you to be the center of attention. What kind of desires produce fights? I don't know. The desire for power, control, popularity, prestige, and position, just to name a few. And I'm just going to say it. There is nothing more off-putting or damaging than when followers of Jesus stop fighting sin and start fighting each other. It's destructive, and it sends a heartbreaking message to the world we're trying to reach. The last few years have been a prime example of the toll that stupid arguments, and yeah, I know you're not supposed to say stupid, they're stupid arguments within the larger body of Christ. A man was stranded on a desert island for many years. When he was finally rescued, the rescuers noticed that he had erected three buildings on his island. When asked about the buildings, the man explained that the first was his home and the second was his church. When the confused rescuer said, uh, can you tell us about the third building? The man looked with disdain and said, oh yeah, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> the global church has experienced this far too much, and I will tell you, it starts with immature quarrels over non-essential issues, and may God help us do better. I've noticed something that all my conflict and quarrels have in common. Me. <laughs> have you noticed that? And it starts early for all of us, right? The Minnesota Crime Commission did a study on why crime is growing so fast. Here was their conclusion, and this is a quote. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy. 
Deny him these once, and he seethes with rage and aggression, which would be murderous if he wasn't so helpless. He's dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, and no skills. This means that all children are born delinquent. And if permitted to continue in this self-centered world, every child would grow up to be a criminal. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> it doesn't need to continue. Anytime I place myself in the center of my universe, it causes conflicts and quarrels with other people. When I declare that I'm the king of my universe, it immediately bounces back from the people I'm doing life with. My wife, my coworkers, my fill in the blank. James is saying, anytime you take the position of power or position and use it to serve yourself, you've missed out on a key component of walking with Jesus, humility. There is only room for one king in the kingdom of King Jesus, and I'm not that king, and you're not that king. Deal with it. Hmm. James drives the knife a little deeper by not even taking a breath and moving on to me-centered prayer. He says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Here's the key to having God respond to your prayers. What if we focused on God's desires instead of our own? Pastor Bryant, several months ago, asked a profound question during the last series. Here's what he said. I'm going to paraphrase it. If God answered all of your prayers right now, would anyone's life change other than yours? James says the problem of unanswered prayer is that our motives are me-centered. And it sounds kind of like this, God, I want to change, but I don't really want to do the hard work, so could you just change me? Amen. Me-centered prayers will not be answered in the way that we want. When was the last time you started a prayer time saying, God, teach me to want what you want for me? Let me say that again. God, teach me to want what you want for me. You know why we don't pray those kinds of prayers? Because achieving things like humility and servanthood and refinement and perseverance and character, those elements of life come with a high cost. But that's exactly what God wants for us. Why? Because God knows they're priceless. They're valuable. Then James moves on to me-centered living. And he makes a bold statement. He goes, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Enmity is another word for hatred. That's strong, right? James is saying anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And I checked out the Greek words in the verses just to make sure the English language wasn't overstating it. I mean, I think a little part of me wanted it to be a little nicer, a little softer. And here's what I found. Hatred means hatred. Friend means friend. And enemy means enemy. So let's define friendship, all right? James is not talking about reaching into the life of another person so you can share Jesus with them. That's a beautiful kind of friendship. He's not saying that that should stop. In fact, he believes that should increase. We should all have friends in which we have a relationship of trust where we can share the truth of Jesus. Chapter 2, he just finished telling us, get the, the oars in the water, both of the oars, let our faith and our deeds do just that, lead people towards Jesus. That's not the friendship he's talking about here. This friendship with the world means 
someone is playing both sides. They're trying to straddle the fence. They're trying to dabble on the edge of the slippery slope of sin. They're trying to do just enough to keep God happy. Here it comes. God will not stand for you saying you love Jesus while you're flirting with what the world likes. They don't go together. God is jealous for you. At Mount Sinai, God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for the Lord your God is a jealous God. God, without hesitation, without apology, this is what God's saying. I want you all to myself. I love you that way. I want you all to myself. He loves you. And here's what he's saying. I don't want to share you with the world. I don't want you dabbling on both sides. And isn't that, isn't that the decision we make, Right? We don't want to be on this side. We won't want to be on this side. So we straddle the fence. Can I tell you something? The fence belongs to the devil. Here's a tough question. Where are you flirting with modern culture and sliding into compromise? James gives us one more piece before he tells us what to do. I love this. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I've just learned this. If, if left unchecked, the emphasis on me, it just shows up everywhere. It impacts everything. You know, we start humbly before God because he saved us from so much. And in the beginning, we're just so aware of his grace. It's so beautiful. But pretty soon, before you know it, we're kind of edging towards the throne of our lives and, and we just want to nudge Jesus into the role of observer instead of king because we, we don't want to be under his authority. We want to be under our own authority and, and we don't want him to disappear completely because we still need him to sort out our broken relationships, answer our selfish prayers and hear the justifications of our sinful choices. But, but pretty soon we've replaced the king of our life with our Selves. And I am here to tell you with James's endorsement, that's not the way a kingdom works. So what do we do? When we find ourselves looking into the mirror and only seeing ourselves and not a reflection of Jesus, what do we do? James is so clear. Submit to God. How do we do that? By allowing him to actually be the authority over our lives. By allowing him to be the king that he actually is. By wanting what God wants. And this is what God wants. He wants to be on the throne of your life and he wants you pursuing him. That means living like Jesus, talking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, believing like Jesus, doing work like Jesus, serving like Jesus. It means submitting to God's plan because your plan won't work. Submit means more than just tapping out. You know, we get this picture of an MMA fight, right? And Jesus has you in a chokehold and you finally tap out. That's not what this is looking for. It means you willfully take a knee in front of Jesus and say, you are king and I am not. You are God and I'm a dearly loved son and daughter or daughter of the most high God, but our roles have not flipped. We declare and live with our knee bent 
to Jesus always. We submit. And then secondly, we resist the devil. Can I say this to you? Resistance is not passive, it's active. You have a spiritual enemy. I don't know if you know that or not. You have a spiritual enemy. He's ferocious and deadly. Satan wants to kill you. He will stop at nothing to derail and crush you. And he's not obvious. He's subtle and sneaky. He sets up snares and traps for you. He wants you to be eliminated from the fight. Jesus wants you to engage in the fight. That's why he said, put on the full armor of God every single day. Pick up the sword and the shield. Stick your helmet on. There's a war going on and you better be ready for it. He wants you to fight for your life. Fight for the lives of your brothers and sisters. Pick up the weapons of truth and worship. Church, if you're going to fight, fight like Jesus did. Jesus and the devil come face to face in the wilderness. The devil entices, he offers. All this can be yours. What a stupid statement. All of this can be yours. Hey, dude already is his he doesn't need anything from you but the devil just keeps offering and enticing and Jesus answers with scripture you want to know how to fight and win a spiritual battle you don't fight with your own intellect you fight with the word of God you stick it down deep so every time you see one of those sneaky traps you can, you can that's a trap right there and then you speak to it with scripture. So let me tell you how this works for me. So I am a natural, I'm a naturally bent people pleaser. Your opinions mean way too much to me. I will admit that and confess that all day long because it's true. When I'm faced with the temptation to choose the opinion of a person over the opinion with God, I have to fight with scripture. My new favorite it's from 2 Corinthians. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. My people-pleasing stronghold can get torn down, and I do it in tandem with a great warrior who's already won the battle. There's a beautiful promise after this resist. God says, if you resist him, he will from you. It's not a choice he has. It's not an option. He's not just going to slink off in the corner and quietly retreat. When you submit to God and resist, the enemy of your soul will run screaming from the building. Isn't that good news? He will leave if you fight. When Satan runs, what does is, what is James say next? He says, draw near. Oh, and isn't that exactly the opposite of what we want to do? When, when, we're, when we're caught up in the center of it and the temptation is there to fall into me-centered living and we do exactly that, what do we want to do? Well, I don't know what you want to do. I want to wrap myself in shame and run away. I want to stop. I want to quit. James says, no, 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 no. Don't run away. Come closer. Come closer. God knows my humanness. He knows I'm naturally selfish. He knows I have a big mouth. He knows I can fall into the trap of believing that this world revolves around me in a second. He knows and he makes me a promise. Come near to God and he will come near 
to you. Do you see the beautiful picture? The devil's running away and God is running towards. Just like the father in the story of the prodigal son. He sees his son coming back home and he runs to him. He leaves all of his dignity and he runs to him, wraps a robe of forgiveness and mercy around him, places the family ring on his finger and throws a party. Because you didn't run away, you ran home. How do we draw near? How do we move towards? The Bible says we confess, we repent, we worship, we retreat from the tyranny of the urgent, we start the day with Jesus, we walk with him all day long, we end the day with Jesus, we just get closer and closer and closer. And some of us in the room and watching right now online are struggling because the truth is we've been gone a long time. Can I tell you something? It doesn't matter how long you've been gone. Come home now how do we draw near when we've been gone James continues he gets so practical he's like wash your hands wash your hands it's an external symbol of cleansing don't be fooled into thinking you got to clean yourself up to come to Jesus when you come to Christ the first time, you don't need to take a shower in order to take a bath in God's grace. You just come as you are. I believe when the prodigal son came home, you could still smell the pigs on his clothing. Did that stop the father from embracing him? Absolutely not. Washing was an outward representation of cleansing. And James is saying, we do need to remove that contamination by being honest, by telling God about that hidden attitude, that old grudge, that habitual tripping point. Cleanse your hands with honesty and then purify your hearts. Purify your hearts just means set your heart on what God wants, not what you want. Ask God to cleanse and heal and restore. Ask him to set your heart after what he wants for you, not what you want for you. And then he says, repent and grieve. James actually is talking about mourning and wailing. He describes a grieving process. And there's a place for grieving our friendship with the world. So here's what I know. Every one of us, we've all got sin issues. If you think you don't have a sin issue, that's pride and welcome to the club. We're glad you're here. Here's the thing with sin issues. We, we get comfortable with them. We, we, we hang out with these old habits and these old patterns. They just become a comfortable part of our life and, and, and we excuse them because they've just been around for so long. And James says these old familiar sin friendships have to be replaced with a greater friend. And Jesus steps into it and says, greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So no matter how comfortable you may have been with this old sin friend, it has to be brought to the foot of the cross and left behind. And I'm gonna tell you something. Sometimes we become so familiar with these old habits and patterns and ways of thinking that, that it almost hurts to say goodbye to them. And James says, you may need to grieve that old process. But here's the truth. In releasing old sins, habits, and patterns, you actually allow yourself to fully embrace a gracious, gracious Savior. 
It's worth letting go. Years ago, we had a surrender service on a Sunday night. People brought stuff to the foot of a cross and, and laid it down. And then we had three by five cards out where people could actually write notes to God that went along with what they left behind. I remember because I had to clean up what was there afterwards and, and there was a drug pipe actually at the foot of the cross and a note attached to it that said this, I want a better friend. I have a conviction. Until you make that old part of your life your enemy, you'll never get truly free. But when that sin becomes your enemy, you're moving towards deliverance because God said he would deliver us from our enemies. Is it humbling to have to come back over and over and over again? Yes. Can I just say it? I still struggle with replacing God with my need to be needed. Is it horrible to have to come back? Seems like on a daily basis, say, God, I'm a people pleaser and I did it again. I'm trying to, to break this. I need you to help me break this. Is it humbling? Yes. But isn't it interesting that that's exactly what James tells us to do. Humble yourself in the sight of God and then get out there and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better next time. For the love of Jesus, get it together, Fishbuck. Is that what it says? It says, humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. When you live your life submitted to God, there's a word for it. It's called Christocentric. It's Jesus in the middle of everything. And that's where the promise comes from. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Oh, we've covered a lot in a short amount of time. So I'm actually gonna invite um, Eve to come and join me. Just Eve and her guitar. And we're going to have a moment where we have to ask some very difficult questions of ourselves. God, is there a place in my life where I am flirting with the world? God, what do I need to lay down one more time? Some of us need to wash our hands in front of Jesus. Some of us need to purify our hearts. Here's the promise, right? Because shame's right here with us. It just wants us to shut down right now. Just quit. Just walk away. Resist. Don't give in. Put on the full armor of God and fight. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He has nothing on you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know what business you have to do with God. You don't know what business I have to do with God, but we all have business that we need to do with God today. And aren't you glad it's just not a business transaction? Friendship with the world is not what God wants for you. Friendship with him is what God wants for you. So we're gonna enter in. I'm just gonna ask you to remain seated. 
If you want to sing with Eve, you can sing with Eve. If you need to bow your head and have a conversation with Jesus, do that. Whatever it is that God calls you to surrender in this moment, to lay down, know that everything you lay down is in absolute agreement with the brother of Jesus who says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Have you noticed something? When we lay burdens down, God lifts us up. If you want to leave lifted today, you're going to have to lay something down. I know exactly what I have to lay down. So I'll be sitting over here on the side of the stage having my own conversation. Because if you think pastors have this all figured out, it's not true. Let's exchange. You want to sing? Sing. You want to pray? Pray. If you need a quiet moment, take it. And then I'll come back and we'll wrap this up today. Eve, would you leave?